At the conclusion of our service today, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'll be uh, eating the bread and drinking the wine, as our Lord Jesus said we are to do until he returns, and that is in remembrance of him, that he gave himself for us. And I think our time in God's word today can just help us to prepare for that and have that be a good and, and meaningful and rich time for us as an act of worship. I'm going to ask you just to briefly pray with me as we seek to study God's word together. Oh Lord, like the psalmist, we say, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For over 200 years, the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has been a favorite amongst Christians. Most of you have heard that song before. I imagine many of you like that song. We sing it here at Omaha Bible Church. Come thou fount of every blessing. And it is a good old hymn, we might say, that we enjoy singing. But every time I sing it, there is something that disturbs me. What disturbs me is a particular line in that song. It's this line. Prone to wonder... Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's very disturbing to me because Robert Hall, the author of the hymn, did in fact leave the God he professed to love and denied Christ. And so when I sing the song, I'm disturbed because it's true. And this is something that the church has struggled with ever since there's been a church. There there are those who profess faith in Christ, that He is their Savior, and yet they are prone to wonder and to leave the God they profess to love. It's a real problem. It's It's reality for us when it comes to life in the family of God, life in the church. There are those who... Don't continue on. It's a real serious matter. For some, it's because of persecution. But for others, it's because of prosperity. And everything in between. There are probably as many different reasons as there are people. But regardless of the reason, there's a proneness for some to wander away from devotion to Jesus. We see it in our midst. We see it at Omaha Bible Church at times. You might see it in your life or in the life of someone you care about and love very much. Some are prone to wonder and leave the God they love. I'm thankful that we have the book of Hebrews because it addresses that kind of matter. And that's one of the reasons why we're studying the book of Hebrews to see the greatness of Christ and to see the significance of maintaining that focus lest we drift away. And if you haven't already turned to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, I want to invite you to turn there once again. We, we read Hebrews 2 for our scripture reading, but we're going to study the text together. And uh, as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, really two things happen. At the very beginning of Hebrews 2, there is this strong pastoral challenge. And it is a challenge to pay closer attention to Jesus. 
That's the opening challenge. That's the, that's the command, if you will. You need to pay closer attention to Jesus, lest you drift away. To put it in other terms, the way to avoid this drift is to pay closer attention to Jesus. And so as a pastor, I want to, to continue to beat that drum and play that chord and sing that chorus. Pay closer attention to Jesus. Then what happens in the remainder of this chapter is he gives us reasons. He explains why. In fact, this book is going to be filled with reasons why it's important that we pay closer attention to Jesus. But in chapter 2, most of the book is about why. And the why is tied to Jesus' great humanity in identifying with us as a perfect Savior because He's one of us. He became one of us. So that's what we'll do this morning. I I don't um, shy away from telling you that it's going to be difficult for us to do Hebrews chapter 2. I think we'll be done in two and a half hours, but I was kind of pushing it. I will start talking very, very fast. I'll put it in, in speed up mode. But I really do want to try to do a chapter a week to get the bigger picture. And someday we'll come back and do a verse a week. But for now, I want to do a chapter a week. It's been such a blessing in my life just to read the big picture again and again and again. If you're looking for something to do in your devotions, just just read the chapter again and again and again and read the book again and again and again. And before you know it, you're going to start seeing the connections and you're going to start seeing associations and it's going to make more and more sense. And uh, I would just encourage you to do that. Um, This week I will read Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, especially 3, again and again and again, just looking to see how it develops and to see just how great Christ is and how important that is in our lives as we avoid the drift. You get my drift? That was almost funny, but not quite. (laughs) One more thing that's not so funny. You can definitely tell in Hebrews that there's this warm, pastoral, I care, don't drift away kind of earnestness. And you can also tell at times in the book of Hebrews that there is this more intense, firm, strong exhortation kind of thing. And and I'll try to capture that in preaching. That you care so much, the writer of Hebrews does, about Christians that you're willing to talk about hard things. And sometimes you're willing to talk in hard ways. Lest you leave the God you profess to love. Okay? Let's look at this opening challenge to pay closer attention to Jesus. And it's in verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's intense. It's meant to be intense. It starts with the therefore, which obviously reaches back to chapter 1, which has been all about what? It's been all about the greatness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the finality of Christ. Therefore, in light of that, in light of Him, pay much closer attention, lest you drift away. Just to make sure we catch a sampling of it, uh, let's go ahead and connect the dots, so to speak. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, good, good summary or preview of chapter 1. 
So let's let's look at that chapter one, verse one. Long ago, in many ways, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these drum roll last days, He spoke. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. That is this grand statement. Oh yes, this God is a talking God. He reveals Himself. But you know what? In these last climactic final days, He's spoken to us in none other than His Son. Then He unpacks that in the first chapter. And then where we come to our passage today, Therefore, therefore we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. It's, it's, it's good to see the connection, and it's startling. I like the image that he uses. He, he helps us to, to see this in even more graphic terms, where he says, much, uh, a much closer attention, to pay attention. Original language is, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nautical term for shipping. Where if you are in charge, you're the captain of the ship, you must pay much closer attention to what you're doing, to where you're going. You better figure out your coordinates and you'd better aim and you'd better stay on target. You'd better stay the course. Because if you don't, if you're not purposeful, if you're not deliberate, if you're not intentional, you drift away. And you, every single person in this room knows this if you've ever been in a body of water bigger than your bathtub. Whether you're at sea or in a lake or in a river or in a pool, you don't just stay there. Unless you put forth effort to stay there or to stay a certain course. Now the author is obviously not saying we're saved by doing these things in our efforting. He's going to make it so clear, as he already has in chapter 1, that it's all based upon the work of Christ that we're saved. But most certainly, he now is talking to professing Christians. And you know what? If you're a Christian, you will stay the course. And how do you do that? You do that by continually looking to Christ and to the gospel. And that is how you keep from drifting. We know that that's what he's talking about, even though he doesn't use the word gospel in chapter 2, verse 1. It's what we've heard. Well, what have we heard? Well, we've heard the truth about Jesus. And we're going to drift away from that truth if we don't pay much closer attention to what we've heard. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.19 where he says that some have made shipwreck of their faith. Crashing and burning by not focusing on the gospel of Christ. There's a real danger, a drifting danger. I like to think of it in these terms. We all have gospel ADD. Attention deficit disorder. Oh yeah, I know all that. Yeah, yeah I know that. In one ear, out the other ear. And he's saying, oh no, you've got to be deliberate. You've got to be purposeful. You must pay much closer attention. And pastorally, I want to echo those words. 101 ways to drift away. And he's saying, be purposeful. And from there he tells us why. 
And there's all kinds of complications. I, I kid you not, Hebrews 2 is not easy. Okay? This isn't for the faint of heart, and we're going to try to do a bunch of verses, but he's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to talk about why now. Why can you look to Jesus? Why is Jesus so granted? Why is he so great? Why is he, he the key? Why is he so worthy of you fixing your eyes on him? And he answers that question, and I can at least help you a little bit and say a primary emphasis that we see throughout the chapter is that he became one of us. And there's no way he could save us if he didn't become one of us. In many ways, the chapter celebrates the humanity of Jesus. It may very well be one of the reasons why this had to happen in the original audience is because when you're feeling pressure from others about your faith, you know what? It's pretty easy if you're naive, and we all are to a degree, to, to, to give some credence or to give some credibility to somebody who says, well, yeah, you know, your life is kind of hard, your life is kind of messed up, and, and, and it doesn't really look very successful, you don't look very prosperous. But you know what, actually that would make sense because the, the religion you're a part of is, is a religion founded, you know, by a crucified Savior who didn't even have a house? A mere man? Come talk to me about spirituality. I might be able to introduce you to my own angel. Or something. Or it might be, well, something else. What's stressed is the humility and humanity of Jesus, not as an argument against authentic Christianity. It actually is the very thing we so desperately need. We need Jesus to be a man. We need him to be one of us. And that doesn't become an argument against us to discourage us. It becomes an argument for to bolster. And we say, oh, yes, I'm so glad he became one of us. It means we could be saved. I do love it, the way kind of false teaching works. For some, it works badly. But for others, it actually is helpful. Because the very criticism which would be the humanity of Jesus, is the very thing that we need him to be. Oh, yes, we need him to be God as well. That's not the emphasis in this chapter. So let's now begin looking at this. Reasons we'd pay much closer attention to Jesus. Verse 2, For since the message declared by angels, no doubt the law, given how God used angels in the Old Testament, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution or a consequence. In other words, when you break the law, there would be consequences. That, that's definitely true of the Old Testament law. Verse 3 then says, How shall we escape? Given the context, how shall we escape retribution? How, how shall we escape divine retribution? If we neglect such a great salvation. And what's the implied answer? We can't. We won't. If we just read a little bit of the Old Testament, we see God has serious laws. And, and not only that, there are consequences for breaking the laws. God revealed it. It's, it's His law. And when you violate His law, there's consequences. Hey, now how much more? He's saying. We've heard from God in the ultimate climactic sense through His Son. 
And we can think, well, it's not going to be any big deal if I stop following Jesus. Hello, that would be crazy. And by the way, it is crazy when you stop and think about kind of a pop culture, pop evangelical mindset that thinks, you know, God in the Old Testament was really grumpy. And he did have a lot of laws. And, you know, now that he's on his meds, he's kind of leveled out and everything's okay in the New Testament because now, you know, his only attribute is love. What's so interesting about that is this text is actually arguing the exact opposite way. It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying, yes, God had laws and there were just, there was just retribution, but you know what? We've got better, greater, more full revelation now in His Son, Jesus. You really want to be in hot water? Reject Him. Wow. pretty strong. There's no escaping. By the way, this is going to get more intense as we read the book of Hebrews. This is, this is just a preview of things to come. In chapter 10, he's going to say things like this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's intense. So what do we do? We're reminded of verse 1. We've we've got to have our attention fixed on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God isn't playing games when it comes to whether or not we follow His Son or continue to follow His Son. Pretty heavy stuff. Some of you are wishing right about now that you would have gone to the church that's up by my house that said that today's sermon title was going to be uh, Finding Your Sweet Spot. Yeah, we're finding our sweet spot, all right. <laughs> More seriously, some of you are thinking, I don't know if I like this because I, I feel judged. If you feel judged right now, you are front of the class. You're very perceptive because he now is going to clearly use law court terminology. You didn't even know you were standing outside the law court and you're about ready to walk in. Because when it comes to, will you continue to follow Jesus or not? God is dead serious and he's acting as a judge if you don't. So let's find our sweet spot in the courtroom. Look at verse 3 where it goes on to say, It, referring to the revelation of the Son, referring to the gospel, it was declared at first by the Lord. Okay, The issue, he's using decree kind of terminology, was it was declared by the Lord. None other than Jesus himself announces the gospel. It wasn't mediated through angels. It was first by the Lord the divine Son Himself, the eternal pre-existent One, and it was attested to us by those who heard. He's using this legalese kind of, uh, of attesting. They're witnesses, eyewitnesses, or earwitnesses, we might say. While God, verse 4, also bore witness by signs and wonders. So notice there's more witness signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Point being, there's all kinds of testimony bolstering the credibility. 
The, the, the gospel has all kinds of, of witness. I'd like to call my next witness Jesus, the eternal son. I'd like to call my next witness eyewitnesses who were there who saw the whole thing happen, right? I'd like to call my next witness, and the list goes on. Which causes us as believers to, to be encouraged, and we say, you know what? We're, we're not just believing in faith and faith. This is great. I'm so glad for this kind of witness that, that, it, that it is really true. But if you're on the fence and thinking about maybe going elsewhere to have your spiritual needs met, those witnesses bear witness against you. That's the judging part. That's the judging part. And so we should pay really close attention to Jesus. Now let's move on. In verse 5, now the humanity stress. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Maybe somebody's whispering in somebody's ear about angels being superior, angels being better. Who's that Jesus anyway? You know what? His dad was a carpenter. Uh, Questionable uh, conception anyway. Uh, Didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, Crucified. Doesn't look so good. Well, he says, remember, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Don't, don't, look, at, don't look to angels. That, that's a big category mistake. And now I need to have you think about something a little bit complicated. Now what he's going to do, some of your Bible translations have indented it, depending on the format of the, of the Bible you have, your English Bible. But from verse 6 down into verse 8, it's indented because it's quoting the Old Testament. He's going to reference Psalm 8. Okay? And here's, here's the, the complicated part. He's going to quote Psalm 8, I believe, because he's going to emphasize the humanity of Jesus because Psalm 8 is about the humanity of Jesus. Okay? But some of our translations in English have capitalized S, Son, in one place. And so it's confusing. Just remember, in the Greek New Testament, there's no capitalization as far as capital or big or little. In fact, it was all written in capitals with no word spacing. Um, so that has, that's an interpretive decision. I'm suggesting to you, he's arguing for the humanity of Jesus at this point in time. And so he's going to now talk about Psalm 8 in reference to the humanity of Jesus. So track with me. Just think, stick that away in your mind for now. Here he goes. Verse 6, quoting Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. Well, if these are Jewish Christians, they they know where. He doesn't even have to say where. Um, Might even be indicting that he has to just say it this way. Um, Verse 6 then says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? It's a a worship-filled rhetorical question. Isn't it amazing in Psalm 8 that God cares about human beings? This is an amazing thing. Isn't it amazing that we're made in the image of God? Praise be to God that you care for human beings. That's the gist of Psalm 8. So let's keep going now. Back to verse 6. It says, or the son of man. Again, is it talking about Jesus specifically here in quoting the psalm? Well, if you just go back to the psalm, it doesn't seem to be talking about Jesus explicitly. And I think at this point in time, uh, lowercase s is helpful. 
It's going to become capital S. But let's just leave it lowercase s as if we're not changing anything from Psalm 8. We're just quoting it. Okay? Son of man as in a human being. It's astonishing that God cares for human beings. Continuing to quote Psalm 8 is in verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Again, that's a quotation from Psalm 8. That's a, that's a psalm, track with me on this, that the Old Testament Jews would, would sing to God. As if to say, God, you are amazing. It's amazing that you care about us. It's amazing that you've used us, that you've made us in your image to, to be the, the pinnacle, if you will, of all your creation. And, and it just baffles our mind. You are indeed wonderful God. That's what you'd get if you didn't have any more revelation. It's a praise to God for the dignity of man, if you will. But I would suggest to you that if we didn't know anything about Jesus and we transport ourselves back to Psalm 8, if we're honest with ourselves, it's a little puzzling. Please don't, don't check out on, on me now. Just think with me. Why would I say 7 and 8 are a little puzzling? Um, crowned with glory and honor, human beings? I can kind of see that. I, I guess we're different from Fido. Um, verse 8, though, putting everything in subjection under his feet... That, that takes our minds back to Genesis. And God tells Adam to, to, to rule over, to subdue it. And Adam and Eve have this responsibility in the garden. Psalm 8 seems to indicate that they did a great job putting everything in subjection under his feet. Glory and honor. I'm following a little Jewish kid singing Romans, uh, Romans 8. That'd be cool. Um, Psalm 8. Isn't there something more? I, I mean, last I checked, it didn't end very well with Adam. He didn't do a very good job. As, as a matter of fact, if I seem to recall correctly, back in the Genesis account, uh, Adam is supposed to rule over and subdue. And what happens is you've got the serpent who he's supposed to rule over and subdue actually ruling over him and subduing him. It looks a lot like the serpent one, crowned with glory and honor, inspired by Satan. I think the writer to Hebrews is purposely drawing upon Psalm 8, connecting the dots for us. Even back then, there is an anticipation for something better, something more. Oh, and by the way, it's Jesus. As he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam the ultimate human being. Adam didn't have dominion and rule over to the point where he could be crowned with glory and honor. He blew it. But there is one who's called the last Adam. The ultimate human being on behalf of all humanity as Adam was representative. And he leads in the victory to be crowned with glory and honor See, I don't think the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament and playing games with it. It was there all along. 
There, there needed to be something more because Adam didn't pull it off and you don't pull it off and I don't pull it off. Read the Old Testament history. The patriarchs didn't pull it off. Even back in Psalm 8, there's this anticipation of one who would be far greater than Adam or anyone else. And here the masterful writer of Hebrews is connecting the dots saying, this fits. You see? I could sit down with a Jewish person and talk to them about this and they wouldn't accuse me of reading tons into it because I'm going to say to them, you know, well, they might. But I'm going to say, Psalm 8 was talking about something that never even happened. Unless we have an ultimate last Adam. You see, we need an ultimate human being. We need Jesus to become one of us. And when people make fun of you that he is weak because he became a human being, no, it's according to plan. It's according to anticipated plan. Verse 8 then goes on to say, Now, now he's going to interpret, he's going to connect the dots for us. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, now he's back to talking about Jesus specifically. He left nothing outside his control. Aha. There we go. I love the double, em- double emphasis. Everything and nothing. Everything in subjection to him left nothing outside of his control. Now we're talking business. Now we're seeing the greatness of Jesus doing what the first representative failed to do and never did. Jesus is the very one who fulfills the duty that Adam failed to complete. Then 8 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I'll, I'll grant that. And in the midst of suffering and persecution, you know, you, you're, you're wishing you could see it all happen in reality. But based upon the work Christ has already done, it's secured. But he's anticipating that objection. And so he answers it in verse 9. But we, talking to Christians, but, 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 but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, a reference to the incarnation, and a reference to him becoming a human being, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, how did this happen? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And, and some would argue, because you can translate the last word in that sentence, everyone, it's even meant to be bigger because another way to translate it is everything. As in like in Colossians 1 where, where he's reconciling all things. I think that actually seems to fit the bigger picture better. Isn't it amazing what he has done? Oh yes, he humbled himself and became one of us. You can throw rocks if you want to. But you know what we're talking about here is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. Worthy of worship, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, which would even maybe even be broader for everything. He's the ultimate reconciler. He's the ultimate one who has dominion over. He is the one who succeeds in doing what Adam didn't do. He's great. Worthy of our celebration. From a Christian perspective, his humility doesn't blow it or emphasize defeat and failure. From a Christian perspective, we say we've got to have his humility or there won't be any redemption. There won't be any reconciliation. There won't be any, Colossians 1, reconciling all things to himself or Romans chapter 8. 
like what Don Carson said about this. Celebrating the humanness of Jesus is what's happening here. Bound up in his temporary loss of status in order that he might restore lost humanity. All the more reason to pay close attention to Jesus. Verse 10. For it was fitting. Kind of interesting. It's not normally fitting to have the king crowned with glory and honor and also be crucified. But here he's saying, for it was fitting that he, in this context it's going to be God the Father, that he... For whom and by whom all things exist. Do you think God can come up with a good plan? This seems counterintuitive to have a crucified Savior. But it was fitting for, for, for God by whom and for whom all things exist. <laughs> Alright, this is God's plan. I think, I think we'll embrace it. In bringing many sons to glory, redemptive kind of talk, should make the founder of their salvation, no doubt it's referring to Jesus, perfect through suffering. This is God's plan, and it would make sense if He's going to redeem these people who are busy suffering because of sin, that He would have uh, His Son come and become one of them. Truly human, one of them. I love the word that he uses. And using the word, my translation says founder. It means pioneer. King James, I like the best. Captain. Aye, aye, Captain. (laughs) Now, I may be connecting too many dots here. I don't think so, but perhaps. I'll just be honest about it. The nautical terminology, you've got to have your focus lest you have shipwreck and so you're going to pay all the more attention to focus on Christ to focus on his gospel so you don't lose track oh and by the way I love it that he says it here should make the captain of their salvation through suffering perfect through suffering I'm focused on the captain captain of the ship is none other than Christ He is key. He is central. In Him we find our safety. In Him we find our security because He is by divine design our captain, our pioneer, firstborn from the dead, been there for us. Isn't it good? I so wish sometimes we were a charismatic church (laughs) or at least Baptist. (laughs) I mean... It's just grand. We should be celebrating the humanity of Jesus. I don't know how you celebrate, but I'm going to a birthday party today and I'm not going to sit there and look like you guys. (laughs) Isn't Christ great? He's our everything. He's our captain. Now we can get bogged down and, and we get intimidated at first because we say, Perfect through suffering? What does that mean? I thought he already was perfect. We could talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that somehow God had flaws and needed to become perfect. I could cross that one off the list. Um, It doesn't mean that, that he was a sinner and had to somehow get his sin kinks worked out. 
think what it does mean, and I would be in really good company here, um, it's putting the stress on his humanity. He really became one of us. And remember, we have passages in Scripture regarding Jesus. For example, Luke 2.40, He increased in wisdom. Jesus, the man, didn't know everything in the manger. He increased in wisdom. How about Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8? He learned obedience. He's a real person. A real human being. And so he learns the law of God. And he learns the law of God so he can submit himself to the law of God. So he can obey the law of God. Now I'm going to quote Jesus from another text. So that he can fulfill the law of God. As the last Adam. So that he can be our representative. So that his perfect righteousness can be ours by faith. You see? I so love it. He suffered. He learned obedience so that he could lead us out of this messy, jacked up, messed up world. He became perfect, as in perfect obeyer of the law of God, so he could be perfect fulfiller of the law of God, so that his perfect righteousness could be credited to us, so that we could be justified. You see all the different connectors? In one sense, it doesn't get better than this. We need him to be a human being. O'Brien, and I don't mean to just quote a bunch of people, but I don't want you to think I'm making it up. <laughs> in his very helpful commentary, says, this involved his whole incarnate experience. He's just saying the same thing I'm trying to say. We need Jesus to be God, yes. We'll talk about that a different day. But we need Him to be a man. And to learn obedience. To do all the things, let me put it in these terms, that you don't do and I don't do. One of my instructors has put it this way, one of my professors. He lived a life of suffering. Not as a private individual, but as a public representative. Winning our redemption as much by His incarnation and daily obedience as by his death and resurrection. We really need him to be a perfect human being. We need him to be the last Adam. And this text is celebrating that. What's again so interesting, his humanity is being attacked and put down and Christians are scrambling going, oh yeah, maybe I need you know somebody who's just deity and somebody who wasn't humble and, and someone who's different and... Uh, He's like, well, praise God for controversies. Let me tell you how great Jesus is. It should actually be cause for your riveted attention on Him. In fact, it will help you to persevere in your faith. Now let's move on. In 11 and following, He's, he's really going to emphasize the, the unity we have with this perfect human being. He's one of us. If you want to use a fancy word, a $5 word, it's solidarity, unity. For he who sanctifies, Jesus seems to be the one in this context in verse 11. He who sanctifies, he who saves is the idea. And those who are sanctified, those who are saved, all have one source. 
We all, oh yeah, this, this happens from, from, from the same source, and it would seem, given the context, that it's, it's, it's God the Father. Jesus is called the Son in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, we're called sons by extension. Our, 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 the means by which we can become sons of God is through His sonship. So it's good that we're united with Him, He who saves, He who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified all have one source. We're, we're, we're connected to God through Him. Verse 11 goes on to say that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Another great one. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. I mean, whose opinion really matters when you're facing hard times, especially persecution by unbelievers? He's not ashamed to call you brother. So good. I know some people who are members of this church who have faced hard enough times from people that are close to them that I would have a good educated guess that people in their own families have said about them we're, we're ashamed. And maybe have said to them, we're ashamed of you. Some of you have sensed that even if that word hasn't been used. I thought we taught you better than this. I thought we raised you better. And now it's all about Jesus and His perfect righteousness. Now it's all about the gospel and you're only trusting in Him. If they said the word or not, they're saying, we're, we're, we're ashamed of you. The great thing about this text is we have Jesus saying he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So good. We're in the family. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if he's the eternal son of God, the climax of it all, chapter 1, verses 1 and following, you know what? His opinion is the one that ultimately is the only one that matters. To think that the eternal Son of God who became a human being says, I am not ashamed to call you family. You're like, I guess I can take some more licks. Yes. That's what matters. And by the way, he couldn't do that if he hadn't become one of us. He became one of us. He can call us brothers. Now he quotes some Old Testament passages, emphasizing solidarity still. He quotes Psalm 22 to begin with, which Christians are familiar with because Psalm 22 is what Jesus quoted on the cross when he says, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? So now he's going to quote it in a different sense. In verse 12, saying, I, this is putting this in the mouth of Jesus, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your name. Again, we get, we get the, the warm feelings that we're supposed to get. I will tell of your name. I will speak rightly and appropriately of you, God, Father, to my brothers. I think that's the primary emphasis, but there's something else that I think we should take note of. I'm not altogether certain. And that's the second part. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I'm going to speculate a little bit. Sanctified speculation. 
this could also be very encouraging. The word that he uses in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew, in the midst of the congregation, Jesus will do this. Ecclesia, in the midst of the New Testament, uses it for the word church. In the midst of the church, I will tell of your greatness. Hmm. Not altogether certain. In the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Here's what could be going on. Jesus, who is always with us through his spirit, said he would never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, who is ever present. In those senses, he might be using it in that sense. He praises, he speaks well of his Father in the midst of the church. And you say, why is that so encouraging? Let me help you think about first century Jerusalem or close to Jerusalem where these folks were probably living. Okay? Let's think back. We're pre-70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. No doubt Hebrews is pre-70 A.D. Jewish believers, and here's what happens. You become a Christian, and you leave all the stuff behind. The temple where God's presence dwells. Jerusalem. Let's even think about Passover. Okay, you're in the first century, pre-70 AD. Passover's going on. It is crazy, all of the stuff going on in the name of God. And there are so many smells and bells, you wouldn't believe it. There is so much holy hardware, you wouldn't believe it. It is all, it is stimulus overload. And you might even be one of those people who says, you know what, I'm a visual learner. Well, you know what? You profess now Jesus as your Savior. You go from all of the stuff and all of the smells and all of the singing and all of the commotion and all of the community and all of the family gatherings and all this wonderful, amazing stimuli. And you go from 250 miles an hour to zero and you got nothing. Oh, you do have something. You have pressure from your family members who are going to the temple. You know what you have? You're in someone's flat, maybe. You're in someone's tent with, you know, three other toothless Christians in the first century. Having a church service. Maybe there's 20 of you. Maybe there's 50 of you. Maybe there's 100 of you. Maybe there's 1,000 of you. It doesn't matter. The point is, you've got none of this stuff. Oh, you can hear it outside. And you can feel the pressure to go back. Oh, maybe someone has an Old Testament. Somebody might have one New Testament letter or a portion. What do you do? Sit around and pray? Break bread? Do communion? Sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, even though we don't have a Bible? <laughs> I mean... I guess I'm drawing this out, and I'll do it again sometime because I think it captures well kind of the pressure that they would have been feeling. Regardless if it's the intent of this verse or not, you're tremendously encouraged by the book of Hebrews. Don't go back. Because, by the way, God ain't there anymore. I'm thinking of John chapter 4. 
Don't go back. And if the intent of this text is Jesus there in the midst of the church, in the midst of the congregation, you know what? You have everything. You have everything. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. They've got all the stuff, but they don't have God. Don't go back. Pay all the more attention to the captain, to Jesus. Then another quotation from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 8. It says in verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in Him. This is Jesus saying, I will put my trust in Him. This seems to be, therefore, an example. He, he did put His trust in His Father when He was here, walking the earth. And, and He's now quoting the verse, encouraging Believers who are suffering and having difficulties to, to, to follow in his example, which, by the way, we never would have had if he hadn't become a human being. Verse 13 then says, again referencing Isaiah chapter 8, And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And that just overflows with encouragement too. The Son is given the children by the Father. It makes me think of John 17 or John chapter 10. Belonging to the Son because of the gift of the Father. Connection. Therefore, pay much closer attention to Jesus. You were given to Him by none other than God the Father. Don't drift. 14 then says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's just common to all of us. If you don't share in flesh and blood here today, you're not a human being. He's just saying this is common humanity. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Ah, real human being. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, He becomes one of us so that He can lead us out of the huge, amazing mess that we're in. You, I'll say it once again. You need Jesus to be a human being. You need to not be ashamed of that. You need to embrace that. It's necessity. He, as the last Adam, does what Adam didn't do. Destroys the works of the devil. He's worthy of celebrating. Hopefully you're seeing these connectors that go on. I mean, he's doing amazing work, the author of Hebrews, especially to people who are biblically literate. Jesus, last Adam. Destroys Satan. Snuffs him out. We need Him to be one of us. We need Him to be one of us. And think about the encouragement that comes. I mean, your life, think about your life. There are joys in life and there's horrible things in life. Some of us give it different doses at different times. You know the bumper sticker. You know, life sucks and then you die. Not too bad a theology. <laughs> That's not all there is to say. <laughs> but on one level, it's pretty good. 
there any hope? Well, yeah. The hope is in none other than the one who really became one of us. The one who we actually truly, in a whole newly appreciated way, can sing of if we sing Psalm 8. Everything in subjection under him. Crowned with glory and honor. It's Christ, the last Adam. And here you are having your life not be so good. Oh yeah, we've got joys along the way. And by the way, you're going to have greater joy even in the midst of the difficulty if you got this sorted out, at least in your head. Because you can make some sanctified sense of it, even if it might be miserable and difficult. But at least you know that it doesn't all end badly. The sting is taken out, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Jesus stomped on the head of the devil. Just like Adam should have. Just like Adam should have. I love this stuff. I don't know about you, but I'll be here doing this again next week if you're interested. Um, but for now, let's, let's get this done. 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Oh, literally, the word he uses is, is this violent word. And, and sometimes it's used violently. He seizes. He grabs. Keep that in mind. Surely it's not angels uh, that he seizes or he grabs or he helps in this intense way. But he helps, he seizes, he takes hold of strongly, powerfully, successfully the offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Abraham. Romans chapter 4. Human beings who believe, right? He seizes human beings who believe. Ah, so good to be seized by Jesus. He is going to seize believers and make sure they get to their final destination safely and securely. Once again, His humanity becoming one of us, doing what we don't do, is required for this to happen. Is required for this to happen. Dynamic, strong, the rescuer. Now my image is changing of the, of the guy on the ship. He's the Coast Guard guy saving us to get us back on track. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And by the way, in chapter 4, he's going to make it clear without sin. He doesn't do it yet, but he's going to, he's going to definitely make it clear that he, he, he was without sin. But shy of that, in every respect he's like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's just getting us ready for chapter 3. The priest stuff is going to be deluxe. In the service of God to make propitiation or atonement or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You're having this hard time and it's difficult and you're thinking about maybe going backward or you're thinking maybe going somewhere else, maybe because of persecution, maybe because of pain, maybe because of prosperity and you don't handle prosperity well. I don't know, but the point is there is nowhere else to go because there is salvation in no one else because one and only one has been the perfect human being who is more than a human being, who is none other than God as well. And isn't it great amidst our weakness, as you hear the pastor stand up here, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to say, pay all the more attention. 
You, you, you need to focus all the more. Focus on the gospel. You need to focus on the gospel. Isn't it great that even though I'm supposed to do that and you're hearing me say that in your heart when you're going, man, but you just don't understand. Isn't it great that while that's true, our last verse of the chapter comes to your support and comes to your encouragement and comes to your aid by saying, He Himself has suffered when tempted, therefore He is able to help those who are being tempted? You know, I can't help you out with that part. But I know someone who can. He understands. He gets it. He gets it. Isn't it good? Deep into the pool, granted. Just read it and read it and reread it. It's not a mystery. It's not hidden meaning. But we do have some work to do bridging some cultural gaps. So I commend it to you and I commend more importantly the Lord Jesus Christ to you. No more gospel ADD. Remember Jesus Christ as I think the theme of Hebrews comes in that one verse. Fixing your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Lord, thanks for our time this morning, for a great and rich time to be able to reflect upon your great and rich grace. Help us by the Holy Spirit working in and through the body of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And now, Lord, thank you for this great gift you've given to us. That you have given us this unique and extraordinary significance to simple bread and simple wine. To remember that you have given yourself as the spotless lamb to be our great atoning sacrifice that the bread would, would, would symbolize your body because you were a real human being and not a phantom and not merely a spirit, that you loved us so much that you became one of us. Lord, as we eat today and as we drink and contemplate real flesh and real blood, real humanity, may it cause our hearts to soar. May it cause our hearts to be encouraged and blessed and in turn may we bless you for being this great savior in jesus name we pray amen